Now hear God's holy word from Luke chapter 11, continuing our study in the gospel according to Luke. And he was casting out a demon and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we do indeed come to you as little children. We come to you looking for your sustenance. We need, first and foremost, your word. We need to hear it. We need to internalize it. We need to meditate and feed upon it. And so, Father, we pray today that you would feed us with these words that you have preserved for us and cause us to hear them. And then we look forward to you feeding us at your table And so prepare us for that. Prepare us to meet with you at your table in fellowship there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, what is it that makes gossip so attractive, so delicious in a way? Proverbs 18 says, "Words uh, words of gossip are like tasty treats, tasty morsels. They go down into the innermost part of the body, tasty morsels like... Cadbury cream eggs, you know, just sweet, disgustingly, cloyingly sweet on your tongue and then give you a stomach ache afterwards or like Peeps or Twinkies. You know, they, they taste so good, but they're so bad for you and they make you sick. The Proverbs say words of gossip are like tasty treats. Why are they so tasty in such a way that we're eager to hear them, eager to share them? Because... There are probably many reasons, but one reason certainly is that one of the reasons is that gossip gives off this air of insider information. The person who has inside information has this this sense of superiority. Oh, you think you know what's going on. You think you have an idea about the situation, but I know the real story. I know all the details that most people don't know. I'm privy to the situation behind the scenes. You're, you're just an outsider working off of outsider knowledge. I know what's going on under the surface. That's what, that's what the, the, the gossiper or the slanderer, uh, that, that's the air that they give off. And then when somebody brings to us gossip, then, then certainly we know, wow, if, if, if we have this information now, we're on the inside and we're in the know. We know what's up. We're in the sphere of special knowledge. We're, we're very impressed with our own insight, our own sense of discernment and our own ability to tease out the real story. And we don't hesitate to share our warped perspective with others. And of course, when we're in possession of tasty information, whether or not it's even true, whether or not it's even right, uh, it's not our news to share. And, and we aren't sharing it with people who are going to edify or improve the situation. We're only damaging the reputation of the person that we are slandering. And, and I bring this up because this is the nonsense that is in play in this section of Luke's gospel. The critics of Jesus are pulling just this very thing in Luke 11 when they witness the exorcism of a mute demon, a demon that has made a man mute. They, they, they witness this exorcism and then Jesus' critics draw aside telling others saying, oh, you think that's amazing. Well, I know what he's really 
up to. I know the real story. You know, he's not really a servant of Yahweh. You don't, you don't think that, do you? No, 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 no. He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. That's how he's doing it. That's what he's up to. I'm in the know. I know what he's really pulling. And if you know what's good for you, you'll listen to me. So they think they know the source of Jesus's power. They think they know his motivation and his mission. The fact is they couldn't be more ignorant of what Jesus is doing. And they only reveal their ignorance by opening their mouths and showing just how twisted their hearts are. They're ascribing false motives to, uh, to Jesus's actions. They're, they're sharing things in a way that damages the reputation of the Savior. And the definition of that is, is slander. And that's exactly what they're doing. Now, sometimes the right way to deal with a slanderous person is to ignore them. You ignore them and you ignore their accusations because often the accusations are so obviously ridiculous and outrageous. The response they deserve, the response they are due is no response. But at this point in his ministry, if Jesus leaves this unanswered, this allegation that he's operating under the power of Satan, this allegation could follow him all the way to Jerusalem. So he's got to speak to it and he must expose it. There is a time, the proverb says, there's a time to not answer a fool according to his folly. There is also a time to answer a fool according to his folly. And only wisdom will tell you what to do in which case. So Jesus wisely believes this is a time to engage, to answer the fools according to their folly. So let's walk through this section a verse or two at a time. Listen to Jesus and see what he does. We open with Jesus casting a demon out of a man, a demon which made this man mute, a demon which made this man speechless. All of Jesus's miracles, as we remember and as we've learned, Jesus's miracles not only heal and deliver and release the person immediately under the affliction, but there's also in each miracle a broader commentary about the spiritual state of Israel on the whole. So Jesus heals the blind because Israel is blind and only Jesus can give them sight. Jesus heals the deaf because Israel is deaf and only Jesus can open their ears. Jesus makes the lame walk because Israel is crippled. Jesus raises the dead because Israel is dead. And now here he drives an evil spirit of, of speechlessness, an evil spirit of mutism out of this man and what does this say? What is the commentary? Well, Israel's tongues are tied. Israel's tongues cleave to the roofs of their mouths. They're not speaking clearly about the God that they are covenanted with. Israel has failed to pray the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And we saw last week, uh, Israel have, have failed to respond to Jesus with worship and praise. And that's just proven here by the way that they respond when they see him do this miracle. Remember John's father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, who scoffed at the promise of God and what happened to him? He was mute until the baby was born. He was made mute. And just like Zechariah, Israel's tongues are dead and twisted and forked. Israel's voices are muted and obscured by their ignorance and by their sin and by their scoffing. Only Jesus can put words on the tongue of the mute. And here he, just does, he, he does just that. He drives out the demon and the mute man speaks. 
and the multitudes marvel. The people are amazed, Luke says. There's some delight, there's some amazement, there's some joy. But some of the rulers and some of the Pharisees can't let this go without comment. They have to offer their theory on what's going on. They accuse Jesus here of being an agent of Satan. They're saying that his good is actually evil. And what they say exactly is, precisely, they say he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. The the word Beelzebub is so interesting. Beelzebul, not B-U-B, but B-U-L, Beelzebul was a Canaanite god. uh, And that, that name comes from two other words, Baal, which means Lord or Master, and Bel, which means high place or temple. So the Canaanite god Beelzebul was the lord of the high place or the master of the temple, uh, if you will. But it seems that the Jews purposely mispronounced Beelzebul and pronounced it Beelzebub, which means uh, lord of the flies or, or master of the dung heap, basically. Uh, that's what they're saying. He's a god of filth. And so they purposely mispronounce his name, uh, the, the name of the Canaanite god. And then by Jesus' time, Beelzebub, lord of the flies, or, or master of filth, master of dung, had become another name for Satan. And okay, I, I give him a point there. That's a good, that's a good name. And, and Satan ought to be mocked. And Satan ought to be, he can't stand mockery. He, he is very prideful. He thinks a lot of himself. Satan is very proud of himself and his works. And we knock him off his throne by mocking him and by, uh, by, by knocking him uh, down a notch or two. And that's exactly what the Jews did. And that's, that's a good thing to do. But what these critics are saying now, you watch out for this man because he's in league with the devil himself. This is where he gets, this is where Jesus gets all of his power from Satan. Now, they can't deny that Jesus is doing amazing things, but they can't bring themselves to say that what Jesus is doing is by the power of uh, Yahweh. So Luke says, some bring this accusation, others testing him sought for a sign from heaven. He's going to answer this question ridiculous, outrageous accusation first. And that's what we'll look at this week. And then next week, Anthony's going to take you through the next section uh, where Jesus answers their desires for signs. And, And he's going to get into that in the next section. We won't get that far today. Well, Jesus answers these ridiculous charges three ways. First, he says, if you're correct, if I am casting out demons by the power of Satan, do you, do you know what you're saying here? Because what you're saying is Satan is shooting himself in the foot what you're saying. Verse 17, uh, Jesus, but he knowing their thoughts said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Jesus says, stop and think about what you just said for just a minute. If I am casting out demons by the power of Satan, then that means I am attacking Satan's kingdom with Satan's power. That doesn't make any sense. That's so illogical. Any kingdom fighting against itself is going to fall. Who knowingly attacks their own fortress and fights against themselves? It's so silly. Why would, why would Satan cast out Satan? That's his first response. The second answer is, if I'm casting out uh, demons by Satan's power, 
by whose power are other Jewish exorcists doing their work? In verse 19, Jesus says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Remember back in chapter 9, the apostle John asked Jesus about some others who were casting out demons, who were not part of their group, who were not of them, and, and... Jesus says, leave them alone. They're not opposing us. They're not fighting against us. They're doing our work. And later in Acts, remember, there were some other Jews, the seven sons of Sceva, who were trying to cast out a demon. It's a hilarious scene there. You remember it, where the demons actually speak to the men who are trying to cast them out, and they say, Paul I know, and Jesus I know, but who the heck are you? I mean, it's a very uh, emphatic, you know, uh, kind of statement that they make. And so, uh, There are others, though, who are casting out demons and doing this kind of exorcism. The historian Josephus comments on the Jewish practice of of driving out demons. Now, obviously, no one is driving out demons as decisively or as powerfully, uh, powerfully as Jesus is, but it isn't unheard of for others to to wage war against evil spirits in, in Israel. Others are obviously doing it. And so Jesus says, okay, okay if, if I'm driving out demons by Beelzebub, by what power do your sons drive them out? If you're going to slander me, why don't you slander them too? By whose power do your sons cast out demons? Therefore, they will be your judges. In my study this week, I got hung up on that little phrase, therefore, they will be your judges. I thought, what? Oh, I've got to figure that one out. <laughs> what does that mean? It's kind of one of those things in the scriptures that you kind of skim over and you think, Okay, what, what do you mean by that, Lord? What, what, is, what does Jesus say there? Uh, there might be a couple of ways to read that, but it seems that what Jesus is saying is those who are taking up the fight against demons are identifying themselves with Jesus's mission. And, and what they're doing is actually opposing Satan in practice, which is something that these critics here are only willing to do in word at best. And these these other Jewish exorcists are going to stand in the day of judgment to condemn all those who oppose Jesus and refuse to recognize the power of God in Jesus' work. Well, where do I get that? Well, later on, and again, you'll get to this next week, but later on in, in Luke 11, Jesus says, the queen of the south and the people of Nineveh will rise up to judge this generation and condemn it. You know, these others, they believed, but they weren't sons of Abraham and they repented and their faith, along with the work of these other Jewish exorcists, this vindicates what Jesus is doing and they condemn the faithlessness of this generation that refuses to receive Jesus and refuses to accept his dominion over the demons. And I think that's what he means by they will be your judges, just like the queen of the south, just like the people of Nineveh will be the judges of this generation. Well, that's his second response. His first response is, of course, uh, are you saying that Satan is casting out Satan? His second response is, if I cast out demons by the power of Satan, by whose power do your sons cast them out? And then the third response is this in verse 20. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I'm not casting out demons by the power of Satan, which is silly, then I'm casting them out by the power of God. And if I'm casting them out by the power of God, literally the finger of God, then the kingdom of God 
has come upon you. This phrase, finger of God, has a lot of history in the Bible. It's a powerful term that goes back to the book of Exodus. The law was written on two tablets of stone inscribed by what? Inscribed by the finger of God. Also, during the plagues on Egypt, Pharaoh's court magicians who, if, if they were, remember, Pharaoh had these magicians who, if they were doing anything, it was by the power of Satan, if they had any kind of sorcery, it was by the power of Satan. But when these court magicians see the plagues, what do they say? They say, this is the finger of God. This is the real deal. Even while Pharaoh's heart is being hardened, the court magicians see it and they attribute the plagues to the finger of God. And so, and so going back to the historical use of this term, the finger of God writes the law. The finger of God works wonders and delivers people from darkness and slavery. The finger of God writing history is undeniable. And Jesus says, what you see is not the work of Beelzebub. What you see is the finger of God. You, you hard-hearted critics and you accusers, you are seeing the finger of God writing and working before your very eyes and you refuse to see it. In fact, critics, you're just like Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh saw all of these things and his heart, his heart only grows more and more hardened the more things that God does before him. And so Jesus is saying, in a way, you're, Y'all are just like Pharaoh. They know their Bibles. They know what he's talking about when he says a finger of God. You're, you're behaving just like Pharaoh. And so here he makes a little transition. Jesus says, it's like he says, well, since you brought up the power of Satan, let's talk about this. You made this accusation. Let me tell you something about this war that we have going on here. He gives a miniature parable in verse 21. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. What, what is this thing about the strong man? What Jesus is saying is, it isn't me who's under the power of Satan. I'm not under the domain of devils. You are. Israel is under the power of the devils. And, and just like a strong man guards his property and his palace with guards and, and weapons, Israel is under the watch and under the dominion of a strong man who is Satan. The, the hearts and the minds of men are his property. Just look around at you, the demon possessions and how every time I go to a synagogue, I've got to cast out demons. Demons are everywhere in, in this land, in this place. You are his property. But I, Jesus, I am the stronger man. I come, I don't attack the people. I don't attack the castle. I attack the ruler of the house. I free the castle and then I share the spoils. I give everything back to those from whom the things have been stolen. So Jesus says, I'm here to plunder Satan's palace. As Paul puts it later, Paul says, Jesus disarmed rulers and authorities and triumphed over them. Jesus is the only one powerful enough to do it. He's the only strong man stronger than the one who's holding Israel captive. Now, are you with me or against me? Jesus says, verse 23, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. 
you are either helping me gather the lost sheep of Israel or you are scattering the sheep of Israel. There's there's no in-between. There's no neutral position here. You are going to have to pick sides, Jesus says. And and this, uh, I think, is powerful and necessary for us to hear because so many people in our society live ignorantly with, within this myth of neutrality. You, you hear people articulate their, their position and their, their philosophy like this. I, you know, I'm not a believer in Jesus, but I'm not an atheist. I wouldn't go that far. I'm, I'm an agnostic. I just, I just don't know. I'm not saying I don't believe. I'm not saying I do believe. I just, I just can't, can't figure it out. And, and then you ask, well, you know, what, what kind of work have you put in? Are you, are you working on this or are you okay just staying in this position? Because it's kind of a lazy, a lazy position to adopt. You hear this kind of thing, maybe not articulated just that way, but, but you hear this, this myth of this middle ground, of this neutral territory that people live in. And we kind of fall into the same trap. We think, you know, people are just kind of okay. Even if they don't submit their lives to Jesus, they're all right. You know, nice, normal, respectable, white suburban people who obey the law, cut their grass, coach their kids' soccer team. They work hard. I mean, they're okay, right? Right? They're all right. They're going to be all right. They aren't attacking us. They just kind of live in the neutral zone. Well, Jesus says there is no, there's no neutral zone. There's no neutrality. Yes, there are nice, normal, hardworking people who are in Satan's kingdom under his domain and are on the road to hell. And, and none of their nicest niceness or their normalcy changes that fact. They worship at the altar of respectability. They pray to the God of niceness and their hearts are saturated with rebellion against God. Their hearts are saturated with love for themselves. Satan is a deceiver. And, and here's what is so deceptive. He leads us to look at all this rebellion against God, whether in others or or in ourselves. We look at rebellion against God and we say, eh, that's that's not too bad, right? It's not terrible. That person can't possibly be under Satan's rule. But if they're not submitting to the Lord Jesus, where are they? Who do they belong to? There are only two sides. And unless they repent and embrace the Lord Jesus, they are without hope. Nothing except Jesus can or will save them. There is nothing in between. And so part of your job and part of my job is disabusing people of their false sense of security. Just as Jesus is telling people here, all of you opposing me are my enemies. You're clear about that. But so are those of you who aren't speaking up. Those of you who are silent, those of you who aren't saying anything, those of you who think you can remain neutral, you're my enemies too. You're not with me. Matthew Henry wrote this. Every once in a while, you got to throw out a good Matthew Henry, right? Every year or so. Matthew Henry said, the sinner has a good opinion of himself, is very secure and merry, has no doubt concerning the goodness of his state, nor any dread of the judgment to come. He flatters himself in his own eyes, and he cries peace to himself. And before Christ appeared, all was quiet, because all went one way. But the preaching of the gospel disturbed the peace of the devil's palace. And this is precisely what Jesus is saying here. This is what I came to do, to shake the foundations of Satan's kingdom, to make very clear that there's a division between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell. 
There's a difference between the kingdom of life and the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus comes to be effective in cleansing Israel of her demons, to call men to pick sides, to, to knock off this deception of the devils. The effectiveness and the potency of Jesus' ministry is what he addresses next in verse 24. He says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Jesus is the stronger man, stronger than Satan, but man on his own is not stronger or more powerful than Satan and cannot of his own accord resist Satan in his own strength. A man who is on his own somehow able to rid himself of his demons can be repossessed. How many people have you known who have been plagued with an addiction or a habitual sin or, a, or an enslavement or an entrapment to a behavior, and they somehow, by sheer willpower, overcome it. And, and they, they somehow get it worked out. And then, and then everything's fine for a while. But how long does that last ordinarily? Does it last long? Or does something else take its place? Or does it go right back to the thing that they were possessed by before? Uh, Jesus says a demon who leaves goes out of a man, he wanders around, and then the life of the man is put back together. It has the appearance of order and cleanliness, but that just makes it all the more attractive for the demon. So he brings seven more friends, more wicked than himself, to dwell there, and the man is worse off than when he started. So it's no great progress to kill some bad habit or to overcome some besetting sin, to fight your demons on your own in your own power or by the power of human will or by some self-help strategy that leaves grace and the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit out of it. All you're doing is sweeping the floor. You're tidying up. You're just getting things ready for the next addiction. You're just cleaning things up for the next demon, the next life-choking habit. But when Jesus runs the demons out, they stay gone. Trying to use neutral methods or trying to use Christless strategies or humanistic programs for the development, the maturation, the holiness, the perfection of man, it doesn't make him better off. It just cleans him up real good before the next big plague of demon possession hits him. So you may get a nice clean house, but you don't get transformation of your soul. You may have temporary peace and freedom from trouble, but you don't have eternal life. You have a house that's empty for a moment, but, but doesn't stay that way. However, the sinner who repents and trusts in Jesus has a new permanent resident, the Holy Spirit, that is not exercised and does not drive you to madness, but gives you life. Again, Jesus is describing Israel here. Yes, he's talking about a man, but he's always talking about Israel and their spiritual condition. Israel has tried to run off the demons with their own legalism. They've tried to run them off with their own purity and their own self-righteous religion and their own nationalism and other things. But in fact, now when Jesus comes, things are far, far worse than they've ever been. They need Jesus to exercise their demons decisively, finally, and fully. Well, there's one little um, 
tag on the end of that section. By the way, that also goes for not just individuals and not just Israel, but that goes for nations and institutions and spheres of human uh, authority. That if we want to exercise our demons, uh, we can fix some things with politics and we can fix some things with money and we can fix some things just by the sheer power of human will. But those fixes don't last. We're just cleaning things up, waiting for the next demon to come along and take up residence. Only by submitting everything to the, king, the, the kingly rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, do things stay cleaned up. And that's what Jesus is talking about. But there's one little tag on the end of this section, verse 27. As it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. But he said, more than that, blessed are those who keep the word of God, who, I'm sorry, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. As if we needed proof of what Israel was thinking and how Israel was processing things and how the message was being mangled and muted. Here is this nice woman speaking up and her response to everything Jesus just said is, oh my, your mother must be so proud of you. Uh, you're, you're, what, a, what a fine, fine boy you are. What an amazing woman must have raised you. That's the response to everything Jesus said. You must have an amazing mother. Well, Mary was an amazing woman. There's no doubt. She was blessed. Elizabeth says as much. When you know, Elizabeth saw Mary, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary was great. But what does that have to do with what Jesus is doing or saying here? It's a strange non sequitur. And so Jesus says, well, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So he, he kindly and gently corrects this, this superficial, this, this sentimental platitude that this woman uh, 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 shouts. Now, it's, it's easy to be hard on people who've been dead for 2,000 years. It's easy to be hard on people who had some of their worst moments recorded in the most famous book ever published. How would you like the dumbest thing you ever said to be recorded in the Bible? Forever. <laughs> now, she might have been a really wonderful lady, maybe, and, and no doubt, she, she might have been brilliant, and she said all kinds of amazing, wonderful, helpful things, but, but this wasn't it. Uh, but how do we respond? Do, do we just say, oh, that, that's so precious. That's just so wonderful. That's, that's really nice. And we go on and we just kind of float through the rest of our day. Or, or do we respond like the critics and say, oh, you know, it's, it's not real. It's, it's, there's, there's some uh, fakeness or some malevolence to what Jesus says and does. We don't want to respond like this woman. We don't want to respond by the, like the critics. Very quickly, what, how do we respond to this passage? Just two things. First, I rejoice that Jesus is the strong man who is still defeating Satan. And Jesus is still crushing everything that is causing chaos and confusion in the world. Jesus is continuing to destabilize the kingdom of sin and darkness. And one of the ways he does that is by getting the demons to expose themselves. When Jesus goes, place, go, goes different places in the gospels, demons just kind of boil up to the surface when he appears. What's going on there? Well, well they, they're, they're stirring themselves up and they're exposing themselves so that they can be defeated. You wonder why you see so much perversion and cruelty and insanity in the world? 
That's just the demons showing their stripes, showing their colors, waving their flags, saying, here we are. This is, this is where we reside so that Jesus and his people, the church, can know where the demons are and defeat them. We can't cast out demons that are hiding. We, we, can't, we can't do anything about the ones that, that are under the covers or that aren't seen. They need to be exposed so that they can be defeated. And the more faithful we are, the holier we are, the crazier they get. The more insane and more ridiculous their nonsense. And then, and then Jesus and his people and the truth are vindicated when we overcome them. So when you watch the news, don't, don't think, oh my goodness, what? oh, it's the end of the world. I can't believe this terrible stuff. Don't just think, okay, there's some, there's some demons raising up their heads. They're exposing themselves. They're showing where they are so that, so that they can be defeated. Now I've got some work to do. I know I need to pray for that and I need, I need to pray for them and I need to pray for this. Jesus is still fighting with you and for you, and Jesus always wins. So don't fear. Trust in him. Trust in the strong man who always wins the battle. The second thing is that I realize that I constantly need to be reminded about this myth of neutrality that Jesus points out here because we live in a world where this myth is the air we breathe and the water we drink. We think that movies and music and TV shows and books and plays and art and video games and iPhone apps and education and science and technology and government and business, it's all neutral. It just all kind of exists and it doesn't really belong to Jesus and it doesn't really belong to the devil. But Jesus says very clearly, he who is not with me is against me. Either it is submitting to the rule of the Lord Jesus or it is opposing him. And so earlier Jesus said, he said, he's who's not against us is on our side. We, we have a big team. We have a good team. We have the winning team. But that doesn't mean that everything is good. That doesn't mean everything is edifying or helpful or redeemed or reformed or glorious. And so what you and I need uh, is to, to learn more and more, to see the world the way that God sees it, to have our eyes and ears and mind tuned toward righteousness, and for us to be able to, uh, to, to recognize counterfeits and vain things and empty things and wasteful things. The prince of this world wants to neutralize our witness. He wants to dull our senses. He wants to silence. He wants to mute our testimony. He wants to undermine our credibility. We can't compromise and swallow this myth. Stand with Jesus against the gods of this generation. As Jesus said, you either gather or you scatter. You're either building up the church or you're tearing her down. There is no middle ground. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you for Jesus and for his words. And we pray that we wouldn't uh, simply let them roll off of us, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't go into criticism mode thinking why we don't need to to listen to you and convince ourselves why we don't need to hear this. Father, we pray that you would grant us your Holy Spirit, that we might receive and follow and meditate on every word that you've said. So, Father, continue to, uh, to, to marinate us in your word this week as we work and play and study and live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.